fueled by crystal light. Probably the only pastor that can say that in this pulpit ever. <laughs> um, anyway, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Uh, all summer long, if you've been with us, we've been going through the Psalms, kind of the summer of the Psalms, if you will, and just diving into uh, the Psalter for the church. Uh, I know just going through this has increased my love of the Psalms, has deepened my prayer life, my vocabulary with the Lord, um, and I think it's opened me up emotionally. And I don't just say that as kind of a, a catchy intro to get you to buy into something we're doing here, but that's uh, just been my reality. So uh, if you don't know me, my name is Hunter. Uh, Kevin gives me the privilege, and I do mean that in the fullest extent of the word, the privilege of, of preaching on a Sunday morning, of stewarding uh, the pulpit, and of heralding the Word of God. And so I'm grateful for him. I'm grateful they decided to have a baby and give me this opportunity. Uh, Kevin, obviously, uh, if, you, if, you're not, if you're new here, you don't know, but, but for everybody else, they're out with the birth of their fifth child, Ivy Hope. And again, we are grateful for her health and well-being and Tara, and just pr- uh, pray blessing and favor um, and health on, on their family as a whole. Uh, I am married to one wife, Kate. She is my better half. Like all 51 through 100% are just all her. Um, I, I outdid myself there, but she is a, a gift to me, a grace to me, and just a beautiful soul. And so I'm grateful um, to be married to her for eight years now. And then we have three pets that you probably call children. Um, they are crazy, y'all. <laughs> Most days I feel like a human Roomba. Um, I'm just like in a hostage negotiation situation with my sanity all the time. It's like, give it back. I'm like, it's going to cost you. Um, but with that being said, we can go to Psalm 23 and, and the Word. And the reason why we are here is to, to sit under the Word of God as God's people. Psalm 23, it says this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, would you just pause the frenetic activity of our minds? Would you still, God, our restless souls? And would you allow us, with David, to say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have all that I need. Because we have you. You are our treasure, Jesus. You are our king. Would you uh, just make that more so through the preaching and the teaching of your word, grow us more into your likeness, and help us to love more like you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I became a Christian in college uh, directly by means of a John Piper sermon when running on a treadmill at the Bobby, jo- uh, Bobby Jones Expressway Gold's Gym. Could probably still take you to that treadmill and just heard the gospel unpacked like I never have before in my life. But indirectly, I became a Christian through a ministry called Campus Outreach. Uh, It's a kind of ministry out of, um, I think, First Pres downtown. Great campus ministry, have nothing but good things to say about it. But that's really what, um, and kind of where in the context where I learned what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. I thought I was a disciple of Jesus all my life and had to relearn all of that once in college. 
Uh, and while in college and in campus outreach, I was in a part of what we called the discipleship group. It's what we call a DNA group, same thing. It was three of us guys, and then we had a staff member on uh, staff with campus outreach who would disciple us and lead us through uh, the gospel in, in a plethora of ways. And on one such occasion, uh, we met at the Chick-fil-A on Washington Road in Augusta at 6 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. Get like a chicken biscuit or something. But on one such occasion, with our eyes nearly shut and our Bibles laid open, one of these guys starts sharing that he's been hanging out with this girl. Right? They eat together, they'll hang out on campus together, they'll study together, they'll watch a movie. Uh, and, and so Kirk, our disciple, naturally asks, oh, so you guys are dating. And my friend goes, no, we're not dating, we're just friends. Like, there's nothing there. She's like my brother, right? And Kirk says, well, you've surely told her this, right? And uh, my friend, again, says, no, why, why, would, why would I need to tell her that? We're just hanging out, we're having a good time. And at that point, uh, Kirk introduced us to a term, really an acronym that was un unknown to all of us, called DTR. DTR. Does anybody know what DTR stands for? Say it louder. Define the relationship. Define the relationship. That's right. Define the relationship. Kirk tells us, hey, dude, you need to DTR. You need to have this conversation with this young lady. Right? He says you need to draw some boundary lines. There's a lot of ambiguity going on. There's a lot left up for interpretation. You're setting her up to fail in her own heart and her own mind. You need to define the relationship. And that's exactly what David does for us here in Psalm 23. David defines the relationship, and specifically he defines his relationship to God with five loaded words. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And then the rest of this psalm is just kind of David unpacking the implications of this relationship. You could say, Psalm 23 is David describing the quality and caliber of life that is possible when we live our lives with the Lord as our shepherd. To say it more simply, Psalm 23 describes the with God life. And so that's how we're going to look at this psalm this morning. We're going to look at first David's relationship with the Lord, and then we'll see the results of this relationship. Specifically, we'll see uh, three experiential realities which David uh, kind of lays out for us that flow out of this relationship with God. Those three, if you are taking notes and you want to write these down, um, are the following. So first, David describes the good life. Next, David uh, describes real life. And lastly, David touches on eternal life. So first, let's look at David's relationship with the Lord. Once again, David says, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. And there's kind of two truths I want to unpack from this statement. And they help us understand uh, what this relationship and really what this psalm is all about. And so the first truth tells us something about God. And the second truth tells us something about David. And by proxy, if we are disciples of Jesus, it tells us something about ourselves. So the uh, primary thing we learn from God about this verse, or from this verse, is that God, the God of the Bible, is both deeply personal and deeply relational. God is deeply personal and deeply relational. To use the language of our psalm, God longs to be with us. God is not into long-distance relationship. He is uh, not into social distancing. Quite the opposite, in fact. God is a God who gets his hands dirty in the messes that we've made, all because he wants to be with us. So check this out. Um, the, the opening two words there, the Lord, in the Hebrew is the word Yehovah. Can you say that? Yehovah. Yehovah, that's right. Yehovah, very good. It's the word we translate Jehovah, right? Sounds kind of similar. 
But this is God's proper name in the Old Testament. And most importantly, um, it's the name used to describe and distinguish the God of the Bible from all the other little g gods that they would worship elsewhere in the Bible. Right? If this were a birth certificate, it would be God's full printed name. First, middle, last. The whole shebang. Right? And so David opens this psalm by distinguishing God with this formal, proper name. And then with the next three words, David takes this kind of high society, distant sounding deity, and he makes him deeply personal and deeply relational. And he does so with this analogy. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And in those days, I would say not much has changed, but in those days, a shepherd is not exactly a job that comes with a lot of notoriety or fame or recognition or glory. And yet this is the comparison David makes when speaking of the sovereign of the universe. And so David creates this beautiful and kind of even provocative juxtaposition between Yehovah, the ever-existing, self-sustaining, universe-creating God, and a humble, lowly shepherd doing the work of the scum of society. I love how James Boyce frames this analogy. He says, In Israel, as in other ancient societies, a shepherd's work was the lowest of all works. If a family needed a shepherd, it was always the youngest son like David who got this unpleasant assignment. And yet, Jehovah chose to be our shepherd. The great God of the universe stooped down to take such great care of you and of me. And scholars say that this comparison to God as shepherd is the most comprehensive and intimate in the Psalms because it highlights both God, uh, the depths of God's love for us as well as the nature and character of God's heart toward us. And that when we could not come to God, God came to us and at great cost to himself, all because God is deeply personal and he is deeply relational. That's what we learn about God from this verse. Now, what can we learn about David from this verse? Well, we learn this. We learn that David is extremely aware and extremely honest about his own insufficiency. David's really real about his own brokenness. And we don't quite see that explicitly like we do uh, the truth we learned about God, but it's very much implied. See, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, he is implying that he is what? A sheep. Yeah, he's implying that he is a sheep. And that may sound kind of benign and cute and cuddly and innocent to us, right, who know a sheep mostly in a nursery rhyme or as a stuffed animal you put beside your child as they're trying to go to sleep. But this is a very humbling statement from the closest thing the Old Testament had to a celebrity. Scholars say that when David writes this, he's most likely reigning on the throne of Israel. Like he's the dude holding all the power. And he's saying, no, I'm a sheep in God's fold, which is David just confessing that at times he's still a bit slow of understanding. David's confessing here that at his core, he is still rebellious in nature. David is confessing that he is really bad at directing his own life. He's confessing he's often put in positions that he cannot help himself. And most pointedly, David is confessing here that without God's care and concern for him, David would lead himself into utter ruin and destruction. And while none of these attributes sound appealing to us at all, David is also teaching us that it's these very qualities that are prerequisites for knowing God in this way. You cannot call God your shepherd unless you are willing to identify as a sheep. And so I'll just ask you this morning, are you aware of your own insufficiencies? Are you aware of your own brokenness? 
Are you aware of your own sheepishness, if you will? And I would just kind of gently say, if, if you don't identify any of that in yourself, I think the scriptures would lovingly say you're in a dangerous place as it relates to following Jesus. As Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. So this is the context of verse 1. This is the relationship David defines for us. And if we're going to experience the Psalm 23 life, then we have to know, like David did, that this is a God who both designed and desires intimacy, and we have to be willing to count ourselves among his sheep. And when we do, if we do, we will experience the three realities that come next with this kind of relationship. So David says the first thing we get from this kind of relationship is that we gain access to the good life. It's what Jesus called the abundant life or life to the full. Look with me once again at verses 1 through 3. David says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so David paints this beautiful picture for us here in verses 1 through 3 of a heart at rest. Both at rest with, with God and with life itself. And this is what Psalm 1 called the blessed life. It's what Genesis would call a, stole, a soul in shalom. right? Just at peace with everything that is. But again, this is only possible in the context of knowing God as his shepherd. And therefore, David says, I shall not want... Other translations, I think the NLT especially says, I have all that I need. I love that language there. But that statement is both a decision and a declaration. To say, I have all that I need, I shall not want, is both decision and a declaration. So at some level, this is an act of the will to affirm to our souls that God is in fact good and He does in fact give us all that we need. Because I think we can all agree we don't get everything we want, do we? right? We don't. God is our shepherd. He is not a genie in a bottle. And we live in a world where our wants are constantly being marketed and pushed to us as our needs. Digital marketing experts estimate that uh, the average American sees 4,000 plus advertisements a day. So visually you're taking them in, audibly you're hearing them, and some uh, experts estimate that number to be as high as 10,000 ads a day, depending, I guess, on your screen time and all of those things. But 4,000 is the, like the lowest they go, just the average American. And every single one of these ads is designed to get you thinking that what they are selling is exactly what you are lacking. All right? And so if you just had that car, or if you just had that pillow, or if your skin just looked that way, or if you just had access to this sandwich, you would finally be happy. Then you would have everything that you need. And with all 4,000 plus of these ads a day, we have to remind ourselves, we have to preach to ourselves that the Lord is our shepherd. And for that reason alone, we have all that we need. As 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Which means if we don't have it, it's because currently we don't need it. And so in one sense, this is a decision of the will. But at the same time, this is also a declaration, right? David is declaring here, and hopefully we along with him, that everything he really has, he already needs. Because his sins have been forgiven, and he is living in the kingdom with God. David is living the with God life, and the relational void that once filled David's soul has been replaced with a robust relationship with his master and his maker. And when we see our lives in this light, 
that God has met our deepest need, our greatest need, our eternal need, it creates in us a level of unshakable contentment because we are living the with God life and that can never be taken away from us. David describes this level of contentment in verse 2. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So you know what kind of sheep lay down in green pastures and kind of rest beside still waters? Sheep that are incredibly satisfied. Sheep that are like 100% content. Because you know what a sheep does if it's hungry? It eats, right? A sheep eats. It doesn't care about intermittent fasting. It doesn't care about its eight-hour eating window. It doesn't care about its blood ketone levels. It doesn't care about its body fat percentage. If a sheep is hungry, it eats. If it's thirsty, it drinks, which means that green pastures don't stay green very long in the presence of hungry sheep because all the grass is eaten and digested, right? Still waters don't stay still very long in the presence of thirsty sheep because they drink and they lap up the water and ripples and waves are created. And so this is not just kind of some run-of-the-mill average shepherd David is talking about. David is describing the perfect shepherd. He's describing the prototype shepherd. He's describing the shepherd that all other shepherds strive to be like, but that none can match or best. And David says, this is how well God cares for you and for me if we are in his fold. David uh, concludes our first point with this in verse 3. He says, the Lord restores my soul and that he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now what's significant here is the phrase restores my soul in the Hebrew means to return or to turn back. It's the same thing uh, as the New Testament idea of repentance, which means this, that if we know God as our shepherd, that even when we stray, even in our rebellion, that the good life, the with God life, is always as close as our act of repentance. It is not something you have to work towards. It is not 12 steps to kind of earn and merit your way through. It is not behavior that's two weeks or six weeks down the road. It is as close and as instantaneous as your act of repentance. So no matter how far you find yourself from the Lord this morning, would you know that green pastures and still waters are still on offer and they're as close as a humble heart and a soul surrendered. Psalm 51.17 says, A broken and contrite heart I will not despise. God never has, and he never will. While the good life is found, and it's only found in the grace-giving confines of a relationship with God, I think most of us can agree, especially if you're a little seasoned, that oftentimes life feels more like the valley of the shadow of death than it does green pastures and still waters. And David knew this better than any of us. Just read the scriptures. But he uh, talks about this experience starting in verse 4. David sets the scene for us here. He says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now I want to pause there for a moment because this is a clear turning point in the psalm. Right, verses 1 through 3 read, uh, read kind of like Friday heading into a long weekend with really good plans. Right? And David throws a monkey wrench with these two words. Even though, right, with these two words, the tone and timbre of this poem take a very sharp turn. But while these words lead to a place of pain, they should also give us great hope because they help us to quantify just how good our shepherd is and they assure us that even on the darkest of days that we're still living the with God life. David gives us three sources of hope here in our valleys. So first, notice the goodness of God to walk us through the valley. 
David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, meaning the valley isn't a place where we dwell, neither is it our destination. It is simply a place that we pass through. And notice the contrast here to the valley we walk through in verse 4 and the green pastures we lie down in in verse 2. And as we'll see a little bit later, verse 6, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's just the goodness of our God. And I say that, or as I say that, I get that some of you may not feel that way in your valley. right? I get that that may sound a little, um, I, I don't know, just harsh to you. Like, I don't care about you. I don't understand. Surely this guy with his combed hair and his gel and his perfect kids or whatever has never been through a valley before, not like the one I'm going through now. Some of you feel like you've been camping out in the valley. Some of you may feel like you're paying the mortgage on the valley, all 30 years worth. But even then, this text assures us that God is moving us along. Maybe not at the pace we would like, but at the pace our shepherd sees fit. And that's where, once again, we remind ourselves, we preach to ourselves, we declare that we are the sheep and that God is the shepherd. That we know in part, and he knows in full. Next, notice what David calls the valley. He calls it the valley of the shadow of death. And he calls it that because for the believer... The substance of death has been done away with. Jesus has dealt with that fully through the means of a cross and an empty tomb. And so all that is left of death is a shadow. It is a weak, blurry, faceless figure that resembles death, but can never actually do us any real harm. As Hebrews 2 says in speaking about Jesus, that through death, his own suffering and death, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so while we may be confined to the valley for a season, we will never be consumed by it. Which means that although valleys are hard, although they are painful, although they feel like they are going to ruin and undo us at times, the scriptures say that we have nothing to fear in them. Jesus has, in essence, turned on the lights in the toddler's bedroom and revealed that there is nothing to be afraid of and that we are safe by our shepherd's side. Which leads us to our third and our strongest source of hope in the valley, and that that's that God promises to be with us. God promises to be with us through our valleys. David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Which means, and I think some of you need to hear this this morning, maybe in a new way or just reminded afresh, that you are not alone in your pain. You are not alone in your tears. You are not alone in your frustrations, your disappointments. You are not alone in your fears, your anxieties, your depression, your losses, and your sufferings. Your shepherd and your Savior is with you, and he is for you. He goes before you, and he leads you along every step of the way. As I'm sure many of you could attest, the valley is oftentimes a place where we grow closer to God than we ever could on the mountaintops. Because in the valleys, we feel our need for God more acutely, don't we? It's in the valley that we sense our sheepishness, and in the valley that we sense God's shepherdness. And in fact, I think you could argue that this last source of hope here, the fact that God is with us, is what distinguishes the God of the Bible from all the other idols our hearts erect to worship. Because the God of the Bible is the only God who can deliver on his promise to be with us in the valleys. And in fact, if you worship any other God besides this God, 
The fact that you are in the valley is oftentimes an indication that your God has left you to begin with. So for instance, if you worship uh, the Western idols of money and materialism, and sudden financial ruin come upon you, hardship, financial hardship come upon you, your God is nowhere to be found. He cannot comfort you in that moment. Let's say life hands you the tragic loss of a loved one and you worship a relationship or a person or a relationship status, then sadly and pitifully, your God will not be there to help you. Or if and when injury and aging occur, and they will occur, this side of heaven, time and gravity always win, and you worship the idols of health and vanity, then in that moment, your God will be confined to pictures and posts from your past that will never be seen again in your present. And if those are your gods in those moments, you will find yourself alone and without hope in the valley. So let me just ask you this morning, what does even though look like for you? What is your valley of the shadow of death? And do you worship a God who will walk with you through it? See, every God looks good in green pastures. Like you don't even really need a God in the green pastures of life, right? But only the God of the Bible is willing to walk with us in the valleys. And notice for David here that God's presence in the valley isn't just some kind of vague intellectual apprehension. Like, I know he's with me. It seems much more like a felt experience, right? He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's as if David is walking through this deep, dark place with enemies all around him. The lights are off. He's scared. He doesn't know uh, north from south. He doesn't know safety from danger. And he can feel these instruments around his side leading him through the valley. And he trusts his shepherd. This is a felt experience of God with him. And scholars debate on whether rod and staff are referring to two different uh, kind of I don't know, uh, aids uh, or tools for the shepherd, like he has one in each hand, that'd be cool. Um, But maybe some say, you know, it's just one tool, it has multiple purposes, and so he has a rod and his staff. Uh, Honestly, the, the kind of meaning in the context doesn't matter that much, but for the sake of application, I want to present them as two tools this morning, or you could say two disciplines of grace in the everyday life of the believer, and they're this. I think the rod and the staff, to give us God's felt experience in the valley are the written word and the fellowship of the saints. It's the word and its community. These are what hold us close to our shepherd in the valley. These are what keep us from losing our way. And these are what give us God's felt experience in our times of deepest need. And so I just ask you this morning, what, does, uh, what is your relationship with the word of God? What's your relationship with community? And just with a lot of grace and a lot of non-judgment and a lot of compassion with with kind of allowing room for your season of life, for your season of discipleship, um, I I would just say I think everyone needs some sort of a daily practice in the Scriptures. The time when they just open it up and they're just asking God to to, to speak to them, to sift through their desires, to sift through their heart, to make uh, them more into His image. And again, that's a lot of, of grace there. There's a lot of leeway for what that can look like. I can tell you, um, as, a, as a single person, that looks very different than it does now with three little tiny kids who are up at the crack of dawn and, and uh, you know, they're up late at night. And so, uh, but I think I would just encourage everyone to have some sort of daily time in the Word. And then what does community look like? Are you surrounded by a body of believers? Are you vulnerable and transparent? Do you know them? Do they know you? And so, again, just an easy plug here for the MCs. If you're not in an MC, you can find them on the back of our worship guide. Just get plugged in, especially if you're a member. 
This is how we do life together. And these are what hold us fast in the valley of the shadow of death. This is what has anchored the people of God for thousands of years. And it's how we live the with God life in and through our valleys. Well, to wrap things up, I think um, we've been schooled. I say that collectively. It's a bit of an assumption. I know I've been schooled. To think of life as just kind of this uh, series of mountains and valleys, and we're just kind of carried along, oscillating between the two, right? So you have an x-axis that represents a timeline, which is your life. You have birth and you have death, right? And we just kind of go back and forth along the y-axis of mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys. I think that's how most of us, at least in the West, understand life. But the gospel offers us a deeper perspective. It offers us a fuller paradigm. In the gospel, we have the potential for all hell to be breaking loose around us. And I mean that biblically and literally. And at the very same time, we can still experience shalom in our souls. The gospel says that even on the darkest of days, we can still live the with God life. Because we serve a God who doesn't change with our circumstances. Because we serve a God who is not confined by our circumstances. Instead, we serve a God who stands outside of them, who is sovereign over them, and most importantly, who is with us in them. And David gets to this with our last two verses. He's going to shift analogies here. He says this in verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so David goes from this picture from God as a shepherd to God as a host. And this is a picture of the end of days. See, when the credits roll and all is said and done, the scriptures speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God will serve those who call Him Lord and shepherd, and His sheep will enjoy and make much of Him forever, uninhibited by our enemies, unencumbered by our sins. And this is the good news of Psalm 23. It's that we have access to the with God life in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus himself uh, is called the Good Shepherd, calls himself the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, as Matthew read for us earlier, because, as he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's why John the Baptist said, upon seeing Jesus, his cousin, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in taking away our sins, Jesus brings us back into a relationship with the Father. See, the God of the Bible is not a God who comes down and goes out to find lesser people to serve Him. He is a God who comes down and goes out to serve lesser people so that they might find Him. And upon finding him, that they might abide with him in this life, both in the greenest of pastures and in the darkest of valleys. And one day that we will enjoy him and make much of him in the life and the age to come. May it be here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is with us. God, on the the gladdest of moments, which we've experienced as a church here, even this week, and on the darkest of days, Lord, I think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Lord, you are with us in and through them all. We thank you, God, that you are a good shepherd, and we just confess with our souls now that we trust you, Jesus. 
We love you. We ask that your word would have its way and that we would go about this week as your sheep, trusting you and loving you more, that we might bear fruit and bring you glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.